When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You ever as a kid had your parents get like super aggro about some sort of rule like no snacks after 10 p.m. or something and then like I don't know 10 minutes later you see your dad scarfing down whatever the hell he wants. I could eat a box of cookies for dinner if I want to. What can you do that? No because you're a fart face kid. Anyhow you get the point of my stupid analogy rules for thee not me kind of thing. That's what today's list is all about, essentially. I'm Jason from MMA On Point. A big shout out to our Hall of Famers. They are our biggest channel supporters. And today, I'm breaking down 10 times the UFC broke their own rules. Number 10, seats taken. Can't sit here. I had to start off today's list with perhaps the most infamous example. Uh, when are we going to see women in the uh, UFC, man? Never. Never? Never. For one, because it's fun to look back, and two, because it's probably the first one that comes to people's minds. I went to a fight up in northern Nevada one time, and there was a girl fight on, the, on this card. And this one girl's really pretty, beautiful girl, comes out, and another girl came out, and she looked exactly like Randy Couture. <laughs> And this other girl looked like she took four Tybalt classes. And it was one of the worst beatings I've ever seen. I don't even like doing it. I don't even like thinking about it. It's about as simple as it gets. Dana White was set against this idea, but what's funny is just two months later, the UFC purchased Strike Force, and also in that month was by far the most high-profile women's fight in MMA history. Just take it from Dana himself. What changed me and what I changed, I think, a lot of people about women's MMA was Tate versus Rousey. So yeah, within only a couple months of him publicly making that infamous statement, he was already starting to realize this rule wasn't gonna last. Number nine, super duper bad. How bad? Pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, super duper, really super bad. One thing that used to mean an immediate firing, no more questions asked, was any type of post-fight antics. The most famous example is with Paul Daly after the bell against Josh Koscheck, and this was Dana's reaction. I don't give a shit if he's the best 170 pounder in the world, he'll never come back here again. We're talking Paul Daly. Yeah. You're cutting him from the yeah. He'll never come back. But we can go even further back in the midst of the Dark Ages, when this sport was still literally being called human cockfighting, anything in the realm of this would get you sacked. When they brought back Tank Abbott, turns out that translated into a brawl. This is why this sport is trying to gain mainstream acceptance. This bullshit is the last stuff we need. And while I couldn't find any post-fight reaction footage from Dana White, there are a ton of articles quoting him as saying that this was one of the darkest days for the sport of MMA. I mean, it was 2003, he had a good reason to say that. So of course he fired both guys on the spot as well and they went and fought somewhere else. But fast forward to 2018 and while well, the two biggest stars got into a brawl at UFC 229 and what happened from the UFC side? Well, Dana's reaction was less than thrilled for starters. Super duper, really super bad. Listen, I, I, I've been working hard for 18 years to build the sport. The governor was here tonight. The governor went running out of the building. 
That's not good. I, like I said, I should be in here telling you guys how many pay. I don't give a shit how many pay-per-view buys we did. Right now, I honestly, from the bottom of my heart, on my daughter's life, don't give a shit. It's just, it's just really disgusting and disappointing for me. But once he had some time and remembered, oh yeah, we're not in the dark ages anymore and that it was strangely turning into a really good press opportunity for them, well, that was pretty much it. There was a fine, but that wasn't done by the UFC, that was done by the Athletic Commission. There was no punishment at all from the UFC. So yeah, the rule for anything after, or even before for that matter, with Connor and the Dolly incident, I wouldn't say it's true for everyone that you can break this rule, but it's definitely true that the major stars can get away with it. That didn't used to be the case. Number eight, we'll figure that out on Tuesday. One thing you'll hear over and over from Dana White, particularly after a pay-per-view is, we don't make fights on the night. Following up the last question he asked me, we don't talk about fights the night of the fight. I mean, obviously we don't make fights the night of the, the fight, but no, that's um, white division. I don't know. I don't, I don't. You know, I don't make fights in that of the fight. So why do reporters always still ask him at a press conference? Are they just signing up for Dana masochistically to beat them over the head with a microphone? What Scrap. the fuck are you asking me right if, now? Well, the truth is Dana White pretty much breaks this rule all the time. Remember when Ankalaev and Blahovich had that bizarre draw where even Jan admitted he lost? And then Dana just basically said, screw this whole thing. But I guess the question is, what do you do now, right? I mean, oh. making title, a split. You do Glover versus Jamal Hill in uh, Brazil. And somehow that meant immediately the next month's main event would have a title in the same division and it wouldn't involve either of the guys that just drew. Thanks for breaking some news there. Yeah, you're welcome. That's what I do. Don't get me wrong, it clearly advantaged the UFC, and I think that's a big reason why it happened. They just needed somebody to fill that pay-per-view slot. But there are tons of examples that didn't really need a huge reason like that. How about Leon versus Colby, which had a lot of backlash, by the way? I don't know how that makes sense, you know? Um, yeah, for, for over a year and a half, um, sat out, not injured. I just don't get how he just slides in for the, for the world tower shot. They did it before Izzy lost his belt in the cage with Drickus. Volk's done this, so did Moreno. How about Nick Diaz versus GSP after Nick's first UFC fight when he came back? It happens all the time, and most of those examples are just in the last year. The truth is, the UFC routinely makes fights on the night, and there's a really good reason why reporters ask him about this. Number seven, how to lose your job. Everywhere in the world except for the UFC, apparently. I'm just gonna point this out without getting in too much detail. You guys know how YouTube is. But what happened with Dana and his wife at the beginning of the year? Yeah, nearly always this has been an instant firing for the head of a company. And this especially extends towards the fighters. Tiago Silva, for instance. Michael Graves. Luis Pena, whose charges were actually dismissed in court after all, it's something Dana's gone on the record to say you don't bounce back from. Another notable exception to this rule was definitely Greg Hardy. Fun times. You're awesome. Thank you. Number six, not a dollar. Could I keep Chuck Liddell around? Keep him fighting? Sure, people still want to see him fight. I don't want to make one dollar of that kind of money. I don't want to make one dollar of that kind of money. I don't want to make one dollar of that kind of money. This is something you used to hear after nearly every press conference back in the day. And you would even hear it early on and not longer after a win streak. By Liddell's only second loss after losing the title, which was just a decision, by the way, to Jardine, Dana was already calling for Liddell's retirement. He's a huge superstar. We could still make you know, sell lots of tickets oh, yeah. and make, it's not about that. I don't care about that, man. I care about him. I care about his health. And, uh, 
it's over, man. Forrest Griffin had won three out of his last four fights and was just coming off of a win with Tito to close out their rivalry. Dana wanted him to retire. Yeah, well, I was fucking all over him to retire. I wanted him to retire. Could Forrest Griffin accomplish than he already has? He's already done things. The people said he couldn't do and that he wouldn't do. I don't want to make one dollar of that kind of money. He did the same with Matt Hughes after just two losses in a row. And honestly, who could blame him for wanting to make sure these fighters weren't getting too banged up inside of his promotion and also keeping the highest level of talent in his ranks? People fall on either side of this, but you can understand his perspective. I, I get it. It's hard to walk away from walking into the arena with the big crowds and, and all the shit, but it just there's there's a point in time when it's just like... You've done your thing, man. You, 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 you've had an amazing career. You've done great things. There's nothing left to prove. And even BJ, when he lost his title with Frankie Edgar, Dana was already hinting at this idea. Um, I, I think the same thing happened with BJ Penn. When I was having the talk with BJ Penn on how great he could have been, you know, but he never took it serious and never trained hard. Of course, he let BJ back multiple times, including to fight Frankie Edgar way later. And then somehow against Yair Rodriguez, I mean, I just don't understand the shift here. It's just one of those things where Dana not only broke his rule, but eventually pretty much just stopped trying to enforce it altogether with the aforementioned BJ, Edgar as well, by the way, Anderson Silva, Donald Cerrone. Maybe it was just some sort of connection he had to these early key fighters that he was close to when Zufa bought the UFC, but yeah, you hear this way less than you used to now. Number five no gimmick fights. Longtime fans will no doubt remember the infamous interview with Dana and Ariel while Fader was still in his prime and continuing to rack up his streak. And he's been tested lately? He's he hasn't been. fought anybody. He's like, never he lost. And, and anybody to put Fader in the number one pound for pound in the world spot? It just makes no sense to me. I mean, it was basically a full-on debate. And the very next interview was when Dana showed up with a dirt sheet on all the weird fights Fedor was in. Well, in 2003, Fedor fought Yuji Nagata, a pro wrestler who was 0-1 in MMA. Wagner Martins, who would later go on to lose by submission to Butterbean. In 2006, he fought middleweight Matt Linlin. Also in 2006, he fought Mark Hunt and part of Mark Hunt's six-fight losing streak. Then in 2007, he fought Hongman Choi, who had one MMA win over TV personality Bobby Oligan. I don't know who that is, but Choi's only other MMA win was against Jose Canseco. And the whole point of this was to say, yeah, the UFC puts on the real fights. Just the best against the best. None of that weird freak show stuff. It's not like I hate Fedor or I have this hatred toward Fedor and the guys who actually deserved it. The guys in this organization and fight the best in the world three times a year deserve those accolades. But this rule, the UFC has pretty much continually broken over the years. For one, I already mentioned Tank Abbott. He was about 10 years out of his prime and almost 40. I mean, way out of his prime. <laughs> I honestly don't know who Bobby Jackson is, but on the broadcast, he pretty much summed it up. What do you feel about that last fight? Are you a Tank fan? <laughs> I ain't no Tank fan, now. Like I said, these guys were 10 years out of their prime. Then there was Kimbo's street fight opponent, Sean Gannon. How about Hoist Gracie 13 years after his prime? None of these guys were winning when they came back either. Of course, who could forget about actually bringing in Kimbo after all those years of trash talking him? <laughs> Kimbo sucks. <laughs> what's up, Kimbo? What's up? What's up, D? Jump in line there. James Tony's. I gotta hold on to the mic. Yeah. This is James Tony for this goddamn station, whatever it is. CM Punk. I can probably kick your ass. 
That is very true. Brock was pretty much the only one of these guys to get a win, so that one definitely worked out. And by the way, we've done a whole list on this if you guys want to check it out to see more. But as Dana White said, they don't do freak show fights. Well, I'm not so sure. Just follow the money because they've done it a lot of times. Maybe not as bad as Japan did, but some of these were pretty atrocious. Will it be a freak show? Um, no. Number four, co-promoting. When I say business as usual, we don't co-promote. <laughs> Throughout the years, everyone has wanted to see fights between the UFC and other promotions. How about Elite XC, Affliction, Dream, Strike Force, Bellator, One, Ryzen, PFL? This is perhaps the one rule the UFC has remained the most strident on. No co-promoting ever. Even if there's a fire. Is there an opportunity for you to cross-promote with the PFL for, say, a Jones-Ningano fight, and is there anything specifically stopping that from happening? Should I? No, oh, talk to me. And Dana, uh, It's just... a stupid question, but go ahead. Talk to me. I should co-promote? You win the dumb question of the night. Congratulations. <laughs> we don't co-promote. <laughs> well, except for a couple of times. <laughs> For one, of course, when it used to be really beneficial for them to associate themselves with Pride, that was when Pride was on top, Dana was all about co-promoting. When I just walked into the arena right. about 20 minutes ago, I, I couldn't believe it. It's just, it's amazing to see this many people in one place at the same time. He sent Chuck over there, Rico Rodriguez, and did his best to get guys like Vanderlei and Fedor to co-promote inside the UFC cage. I'll put my money where my mouth is. I'm willing to do him and Mirko Prokop. When I say him, I mean Tim Sylvia. I'll do him and Marco Prokop. Tonight, I, oh, I forgot to tell you that. Tonight on TV, they announced that Kazushi Sakuraba is coming to the UFC. Yeah! But once the UFC got on top, that pretty much entirely went away until the unicorn of all unicorns came along and made the UFC an offer they could not refuse. It's some logo, isn't it? The big lion's head with the crown and McGregor Sports and Entertainment. Next to the UFC, it's, um, uh, it's been some journey. Since then, they've pretty much stuck to their guns on this issue. But once Ngannou left the UFC, they were all about trying to snag Tyson Fury with John Jones. If you really want to find out who the baddest man on the planet is, I will make that fight. John Jones is the baddest man on the planet. I will make John Jones versus Tyson Fury in the octagon. Obviously, they were trying to block Fury versus Ngannou and muddy that up a bit. But in the right cases, the UFC has been down for this for obvious reasons. And yeah, it is pretty hard to argue why they refuse this inside of MMA. They definitely make less money if they do that, and they have to give up ground to another league. What if their champion loses to that other league guy? I definitely get the arguments for why they don't do it. The only way this could ever change is if more fighters at a top level like Ngannou choose PFL so that they can fight whoever they want in any sport that they want. We respect Nate. He accepted that fight, the fans would love that fight, and we would love to have him. Here's 15 million, here's Jake. We have all the infrastructure, PFL, and we're easy to work with. Think. But so far out of all the organizations I've mentioned, almost all of them have failed or chose to sell once they got profitable. That's essentially what happened with Strikeforce. They were doing really well. They just had a lot of investors that wanted to cash out. So with all that in mind, do not expect this rule to be broken anytime soon. Number three, never again. It doesn't matter who you are. If you piss off the boss enough, he'll even pull headliners off of a card. In John Jones's case, he's had probably the most storied career for all the wrong reasons, and perhaps most of all are his issues with drugs. 
pharmaceutical and otherwise. And when John Jones tested positive for PDs ahead of UFC 200 just a couple of days before he was supposed to rematch Daniel Cormier, Dana made the bold claim that he would never allow John Jones to ever headline a card again. So do you trust him going forward? That's a great question. I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't. I would never take the risk of headlining a show with John Jones again. Obviously, this did not turn out to be true with another failed test that overturned their actual rematch at UFC 214. But the reality is um, you can't fail drug tests. You can pass 100 tests. You cannot fail one. This is a death sentence. He disqualified himself by taking a steroid before the fight, so it didn't happen. So now uh, I get the belt back and then again at UFC 232. But Jones wasn't the only one. Dana also notably said this at UFC 213 when last minute, literally the day of the fight, Amanda Nunes bailed off the card against Valentina because she was sick for what was supposed to be their rematch. After the weigh-in yesterday, she weighed in, she made weight. Then uh, leading up to the ceremonial weigh-ins, I, I, I got a call that she wasn't feeling well. This morning I wake up and uh, I hear that she's not feeling well again. She's not feeling well again, and she's probably not going to fight. I asked the doctors what's wrong with her. She was medically cleared. She was physically okay. They found nothing wrong with her. Yeah, I won't do that again. I won't main event. that title again. The funny thing about both of these examples is Dana literally broke his own rule the next time they fought. For Jones, there was a PD suspension he had to serve, and even with the same drug Terinabol in his system, USADA determined that it was a pulsing reoccurrence of the same drug failure from over a year prior. Why, why have you tested now? Positive. Uh, next question, please. Thank you. Take the mic from her. Better questions. Better journalism. We're moving it from Las Vegas to the forum in LA. Both USADA and worldwide anti-doping experts told us that this was not a re-ingestion of this prohibited substance, but was remaining effects from the July 2017 positive test for which he had already been sanctioned. So not only did Jones immediately go back to headlining at UFC 232, but they also had to move the entire event from Nevada to California to accommodate the whole mess. More humorously, with Amanda Nunes, the fight was canceled for UFC 213 in 2017, but because it was a minor illness, she was already ready and back, and of course, only two months later, she was headlining again. So yeah, these rules got broken pretty quick. You already know the rules, because there aren't any! Number two, you have to do media. You would think Connor would be exempt from all these rules pretty much, and as this list has shown, that is pretty much the case every time. But surprisingly, this is an exception that Dana stringently held to the rule of attending media events. Something Connor refused to do ahead of UFC 200 because he was incredibly obsessed with training to rematch Nate Diaz after he lost to him at 196. So when Connor refused, Dana actually yanked him from the card. We pulled Conor McGregor from UFC 200. He said, I, I, I'm, I, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to come. <clears throat> and I was basically saying, you have to come. You can't not show up to promote your fight. You can't do it. You have to. You have to do the press conference. Memorably, and I'm not at all sure why they left an empty chair for Conor on the dais, which just encouraged fans to boo. I don't know why they did that to themselves. 
I know, I know. But it's not right. That's the, it's, 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 that's a bad precedent. It's not, it's not the deal. And this also happened with Nate Diaz's older brother, Nick, when he was supposed to fight GSP way back in 2011, but. I, I didn't expect this, but I expected some problems and some headaches over the next couple months, but I didn't expect this. I'm sorry I didn't make it to the uh, beauty pageant, but, um, you know, I've never not showed up to a fight. He wasn't actually kicked off the card and instead was demoted to like a co-headlining slot. But weirdly enough, GSP got injured and had to leave the card, so... Nick Diaz ended up getting the headlining slot for the pay-per-view anyway. But still, that rule technically stuck. It was just bad luck that the UFC had to give him that spot because GSP bailed off the card. Anyhow, the way they did break this rule was, well, again, ironically, just a few months after UFC 200 at UFC 207 that same year for their end of the year card. This time it was Ronda Rousey who pretty much had all but retired after home and the UFC knew they just weren't going to have a lot of options here. So Ronda did pretty much no media whatsoever leading up to her return. I mean, dude, they didn't even do a press conference for this. When has that ever happened outside of the pandemic? If you look at the amount of press that's been done by any fighter in the UFC in UFC history, Ronda smokes everybody by a long shot. Ronda's done a lot of things for us. This is what she wanted, so I gave it to her. You have to. You have to do the press conference. And number one, don't stop the fight. This is probably my number one because it played a major role in someone getting fired. I know it wasn't the only thing, but it was a huge part of it. And in this case, I don't think they did anything wrong. For those of you that don't know, during the pandemic, Jai Herbert essentially got KO'd in one shot by Francisco Trinaldo. And because Herb Dean was so hesitant, well, this happened. And so Dana White's response to this has always confused me. And I want to make this very clear. If you work for me and you approach a judge or a referee or any type of official, I will fire you. You will never work for me again if you do that. That can never happen here ever again. One Dan Hardy literally never left his booth. You can literally see him holding his commentary headset behind his booth. You can see that. He was approached by Herb, and look, I've got nothing against Herb. I talked about some of his most justified calls recently. But yeah, there's no doubt he big time hesitated here. Dan Hardy was just looking out for the fighter's safety. And the thing is, Dana has done this himself. You know, what was the fight with that knucklehead referee tonight? I started screaming at this fucking guy. Whenever a guy gets knocked out, you know, and you, especially when, especially when a guy takes more punches than he should. You know, you guys probably didn't see it, you're on the other side, but I jumped up and I was screaming at that fucking referee tonight. Screaming at him. Do your fucking job. Get your skinny ass in there and stop that fucking fight when this guy's out cold getting hit. I was yelling at him while he was hitting him. I mean, yeah, that's a pretty thorough example, but there are plenty of examples of commentary doing this as well. I need to remind everybody, Dan Hardy never left his booth. He never approached Herb Dean. He was just doing honest commentary and trying to protect the fighter. And for Dana White trying to say it was all about him being able to hear him during the pandemic, what the fuck was Dana yelling at that referee for? He was trying to get his attention. 
it's the same thing. It's literally the same thing. But yeah, guys, another fun list down. You all have no idea how many old press conferences I had to go through to find some of these sayings. YouTube has gotten atrocious at giving you good results for old content these days. It just buries it behind all the new stuff or just suggests totally unrelated things. It's very frustrating. Anyhow, I want to let you guys know I'm working on a new list for the top UFC prospects to look for in 2024. The only thing is they can't have already been inside of the top 10 at any kind of point. Hopefully they're on a win streak. That is mostly going to be the case. So hit me up in the comments below for who you think should be on that list in the UFC or on X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it. If you guys have any prospects you guys think I should highlight in my upcoming video before January. Speaking of which, you guys can actually do this in real time during our writers meetings. If you sign up to be a member for the channel, you can do that. You can join in our chat. So a massive shout out to our channel champs and our hall of famers who participate in those exclusive chats every single week. But either way, anybody who watches the channel and supports in any way, you guys are all awesome. You all have a great day. Peace.